This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. There's a new book out. It's called You're It, Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. I've got Eric Minolti on the line. Hey, Eric, how are you? Fine. How are you today? I am great. In our pre-show, we talked about uh, you know, prevention and how too often people wait until it's too late to prepare for you know, either a hiccup or a huge disaster for their organization or for their own personal lives. So, you know, this book is uh, quite timely uh, when it comes to uh, addressing things and, and getting ahead of it. So what motivated you and your co-author, Lenny Marcus, to write this book? Well, we've been doing this work for more than 15 years now, uh, looking at crisis and looking particularly at, at leaders in crisis situations and what works and what doesn't. And we felt that, uh, first of all, we had learned some things that we wanted to share because uh, we had found some, some principles, some tools that would uh, help others who confronted maybe not such traumatic situations, but certainly things that were crises in their lives or in their organizations. Um, and we wanted to get it out to, to as broad an audience as possible because you know, our work is about helping make organizations and communities more resilient, making leaders more effective. So the more people we can reach, uh, the better. And we also hope to hear from a lot of those people so we can continue to inform uh, where this work goes going forward. You know, some of the examples you know, they, they highlight in the book are you know, some national disasters that we've seen, you know, the Boston Marathon bombings, you know, the hurricanes um, that have devastated uh, people and, you know, outbreaks, you know, like H1N1. So is there some common lessons for us to, to learn in these situations, although they're, you know, those are separate types of things? Is, is there some things that organizations and, and individuals should be focusing on a little bit to help kind of mitigate some of those unexpected tragedies that happen in our lives? Absolutely. And I think the first lesson to, to realize is that something is going to happen to you. Um, you know, it, it could be relatively minor. It could be something major, but no one goes unscathed because we do live, live in turbulent times. And so whether it's because your, you know, your credit card was breached uh, when when the bank was hacked uh, or, or a natural disaster hits your community, something is going to happen. And the three dimensions of meta-leadership, which is the model we've, we've developed, sort of encapsulate ways to think about how to get ready and then how to react more positively when the bad thing happens. And that first dimension is the person, you as an individual, knowing yourself, being self-aware, uh, understanding what your triggers are, uh, is really critical to be to being able to uh, regulate your emotions because we will all go into panic mode. It's a it's a hardwired part of our of our system as as humans and even as mammals. The triple F freeze, flight, fight response that kicks in anytime you are threatened. Um, and so, knowing that's going to happen and knowing how to get out, which you can do by demonstrating self competence, not confidence, but competence, which can be done as easily as three deep breaths or counting to 10, something you can do that you know how to do or restore you to more reasoned thinking, more measured behavior. So that's sort of the first thing. The second piece, is the second dimension is the situation is understanding what's really going on and therefore what to be done about it. 
And that involves understanding cognitive biases that, that shade our thinking and also realizing that your perspective on any given situation is not the only one and learning how to incorporate multiple perspectives to get a fuller view of what's happening. And then finally, building connectivity. So having positive linkages and good feedback loops up and down within your organization and across to other departments and business units and beyond to the larger community, your supply chain, whatever happens to be appropriate, but realizing that few of us face an organizational crisis alone, uh, even a personal crisis, you have a family around you, um, having connectivity that will get you the right information that can support you and through which you can exercise action. So those three things, the person, knowing the situation, and then having connectivity, when you've got those things working well, you're going to be perform well and get to the best possible outcome. And when things are not going as well as you'd like, looking at one of those three to say, where are things going wrong is a good diagnostic. Where do you think, or maybe I should rephrase it this way, why do you think organizations put off um, this type of work? Because I think everyone, I should say, not everyone, but I think most people recognize that there's always an opportunity for something catastrophic to happen. You know, like the the IT server that I discussed with you briefly uh, during the pre-show uh, about an organization, they knew that they had to replace the server because it was getting really, really old. And they more or less put it off. And then, of course, uh, it, it did what we all expected to do. It did crash and thankfully they didn't lose any files but it definitely uh, put a wrinkle into schedules and, and functionality of that organization for a bit why do you think people procrastinate on on taking these steps to uh, prevent uh, some of these issues to happen in the first place well I, I think there there is an uh, sort of universal belief that you know it won't happen to me or it won't happen here uh, which is unfortunate, and we, as again, as humans, seem to, to def defer things as often as possible. Um, but beyond that, I think that in terms of organizations putting preparedness as a priority, they often see it as an expense, uh, and they often see the time put into it as time that could be, you know, quote-unquote, more productive somewhere else, um, which is something I try to overcome with people, because when we look at what it takes to lead well in a crisis, it's the ability to communicate clearly, set priorities, make good decisions under high pressure. Those are the kinds of skills that serve you well every day in business. So you, if you frame the preparedness properly, it actually helps you build some of those core skills that are gonna help you in routine business situations. Because who wouldn't want their, their executives, their frontline managers, even their, you know, their frontline workers to be able to do those things, communicate well, make decisions, regulate their emotions, work well in teams, those are all things you spend a lot of money trying to get people to do. And crisis preparedness is a great frame and a great way to do it. Yeah, I was going to kind of, a couple things you mentioned there. One, a lot of organizations look at it as an expense where I tend to bleed over on the side of, no, it's an investment. It's much like an insurance policy in a way, but it's an insurance policy of being proactive about something to protect yourselves from uh, having, you know, an issue happen. And, and, and secondly, you mentioned, you know, the, the leadership in crisis. Is there some common traits that you see in leaders that are able to navigate through these crisis situations that other leaders either lack or they don't, you know, tap in into their own 
uh, internal strengths to learn how to lead in crisis situations? Well, I would say the, the baseline and the, and the one that's well documented in the, in the research literature is high emotional intelligence. So I'm not going to go deeply into that one because I think that's, that's fairly well known, but that ability to regulate your emotions and maintain some calm in the midst of chaos is a, is a core skill. And again, it serves you well in many areas of life. I think the three attributes we've seen of the, of the leaders we've studied that um, are a bit unusual in terms of coming top of mind, but that are consistent in the people who do well, one is they surround themselves with really strong people. So they are not threatened by people who are smarter than them, more expert in certain areas. They know the stronger team they have, the more likely they are to get to a good outcome for everybody. So they attract those really high performers. Second is they're, they're really curious. They ask a lot of questions and they don't want to be the person in the room who supposedly has all the answers. So they are curious about themselves, about the people who work for them, about the people around them, and the situation in which they're operating. So they're very inquisitive. And the third thing is they're comfortable with ambiguity. They know there are things they can control and they try and control them well. And then they accept that there are things they can't control and don't get obsessed with them. The people we see who don't do well in crisis situations or in turbulent situations often are people who think they have to control everything and you'll make yourself crazy um, trying to control things that are beyond your control. You can try and influence them, you can be aware of them and see so you can try and remain proactive, but if you try and control everything, you're gonna fail and it's gonna derail your efforts to, to move people forward. Yeah, and I've seen that to a good colleague of mine and I were having a conversation the other day and uh, their manager is attempting to push through a lot of initiatives in a very short period of time and uh, micromanagement doesn't quite grasp uh, what they're trying to do. I mean, they are literally trying to drive this bus with 800 people uh, and basically it, it kind of feels like they're driving it over the cliff because it, there's so many different changes that they're trying to push forward at one step that when it does likely break and create some additional problems, it's going to be very difficult for the organization to figure out, okay, what is the breaking point in this big equation? What, what's broken? Where did it break? Because there's so many different changes that are being rolled out at once that when it fails, they're not going to know necessarily where to look first, which is going to delay a lot of uh, the initiatives that they wanted to roll out. And it's going to be very challenging. Now, I, I, I say that it, it may end up going well, but based on you know what was shared with me, I'm looking at it going, wow, that's not going to go well because there's so many uh, fail points along that journey that uh, could really derail uh, the implementation of these things because you're trying to just get everything done at a short period of time. And it's uh, it's not very good planning for one. And it actually can create other problems because you're trying to change too many things at once. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, I, one of the things I look at and, and study to understand organizational behavior is to look at cities and look at urban planning. Uh, I was, that's what I wanted to be when I was nine years old and never lost my love of looking at it. And there's a great article from back in the mid sixties called a city is not a tree by a guy named Christopher Alexander in the UK. And one of the things that Alexander points out is that, and he was talking about cities, but I think it's also true of, of our contemporary organizations, is that the human brain, 
in evolutionary terms, one of its strengths is simplifying situations because you're, you know, back in the day trying to figure out was that thing that moved in the bushes going to eat you or were you going to eat it? Um, so it was simplifying things for pattern recognition. And then the brain actually is not well suited to, and it can't design organizations at the complexity which they need to operate in today's world. So doing the constant reorg and trying to, thinking you can arrange all the pieces perfectly is doomed to failure because we just can't, we can't, our, our brains can't do it. Uh, and so understanding that you're trying to create some order, you want to create direction, and then allowing flexibility for things to evolve organically and the people in your organization, let them help you figure out where it needs to go because the team, no matter how good they are sitting around that conference table, is not gonna figure out all the contingencies, all the roadblocks, even all the opportunities. And so, you know, getting too many initiatives too fast, you're, you're bound to make a lot of mistakes, as you point out, not know what the causes are, and therefore they become very hard to fix. I'm a big fan of establishing the outcome that you want the organization to meet and let the creativity of the people that you hire, especially those people that are strong and are smarter than you and, and know what they're doing and get out of their way and let them do it. And of course have an opportunity where they can uh, reach out to you if they have questions or concerns. And then if for some reason, you know, that launch uh, goes badly uh, as a leader, if you remain calm and navigate through it, they, feed off of that. They recognize, okay, and the leader is not acting stressed out about this. Is it intense? Of course. You know, it could be really problematic. But as long as you remain cool, calm, and collected, you know, don't let them see you sweat, you know, is a famous phrase. It helps calm the nerves of everybody else so they can have a little bit more clarity and then be able to address the situation from a state of being a little bit more relaxed instead of just on edge. Because if you're on edge, you don't have clarity and you're not going to be able to see uh, as clearly as you could if you're in a more relaxed state. That's right. As a leader, you have to model that behavior because if you are agitated, everyone around you is going to be agitated. They will mirror your, your mood and your actions. And I think one of the people we interviewed for the book was a guy named Jimmy Dunn, who's the managing director of Sandler O'Neill, an investment bank in New York. And after the interview, he gave me a tour of their trading operation, which I had never seen before. It was, looked like loosely organized chaos because you had all these traders, multiple screens and phones, and things are going like crazy. And I said to him, Jimmy, how do you manage this? And he said, rule number one is bad news finds me fast. He said, you'll never get fired here for making an honest mistake. You'll get fired in a heartbeat if you try and cover it up and, and solve it yourself. Because the faster I know about it, the faster I can help you fix it, the, and the less damage there is to our customers. And I thought that was a great lesson, a great way as, a, as the boss to set a standard, set a principle down, and then model the right behavior. Because when things are going quickly, you're trying to, you know, and all of our organizations now are, are much more, are very dynamic. Um, having people giving them the freedom to do their job and know that if, when they make the inevitable mistakes, it's okay to talk about them so you can fix them as opposed to being afraid that you're going to be punished and maybe fired for it. So it's a very different tone in an organization and it makes it very nimble and very, very agile. And also improves workplace culture and it also helps with retention because 
people understand that if there is an issue, that the leader is going to be there to support everybody to help navigate through those challenges and, and come out of it, uh, I don't want to say unscathed, but at least you know, in a, in a better frame than you know, someone just screaming and yelling and throwing things around the room. And uh, just it just makes for a very toxic environment, and we see too many of those in society today. That's right. And if you want people to be innovative, to offer new ideas, to make decisions and take some risks, you've got to support them in that. Because if they think the, the downside is, is severe punishment, they'll, just, they'll go into a shell. They'll do the minimum to get by, but they won't give you their best. And last question, which was actually unplanned, is how does a nine-year-old want to get into urban planning? I'm really curious about that because at, at nine, I'm trying to do the math here. Yeah, I, would, I didn't have any career vocation <laughs> plans at that point. Now, when I got to seventh grade, I wanted to go into accounting, which was an industry that I was in for quite a long time. But um, how, how did you come up with that? What was, what was the driving force behind that? You know, and I, and I may be off by a year, but a year or two, but not by much. Um, I think in part because I, I was an only child and <clears throat> spent a lot of time in cities with my parents and my, my, my dad and my, and my grandparents in particular. So I sort of got fascinated by how, you know, the subways and buses and sort of how it all worked. Um, and then I also liked, I got things to draw with and, and got templates. And I remember I actually designed a city when I was, I say, with fourth or fourth grade or thereabouts, fifth grade. Um, and just sort of tried to figure out, so what are all the pieces and how do they go together and what makes them work better? I'm not quite sure where it came from beyond that, maybe reading a bit. Um, but it just, it was an intricacy and, uh, and that led to a love of, love of travel. And I've spent time in lots of cities around the world. And I just think it, it shows you that the, the human dynamic, um, how creative we can be, um, how stupid we can be in some cases, but often just how brilliant and, and dynamic and creative we can be. And cities express all that in a way that's, that's, uh, that's organic, it's vibrant, it's, uh, it's fun and interesting. And uh, I you know, never went into that field and probably turned out wouldn't have been that good at it, but um, conceptually I love it. Well, I see a ton of synergies between piecing together all of that stuff and the work that you do now. I, it, it's turned out that way, and I think that you know I I look at nature and I look at cities as my two great sources of inspiration because if you want to see how things work, to me those are the two best laboratories. Um, and, and you know I do so that's where I do a lot of reading and study is not so much in the traditional organizational behavior literature. I do that as well and have great respect for those folks, but looking how things work in nature, looking at the dynamism of cities you can learn an awful lot about how our organization should work and how leaders can be more effective in them. Couldn't agree more. So where can people find out more about you and this awesome work that you're doing? Well, I'll give you a couple places. If you, people want to find me personally, ericmcnulty.com is an easy place. If people want to learn about the book, they can go to www.bit.ly, so bit.ly forward slash your book, and you'll find all the various channels. And the MPLI, the program where I teach at Harvard, is npli.sph.harvard.edu. We have lots of free resources there, podcasts and videos and all kinds of things about metal leadership and the material in the book. All great resources, and I'll definitely have all that information in the show notes. So, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Love the work that you're doing, and, and I've really enjoyed this conversation today.
Likewise, Michael. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst-case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get as a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.